You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 63. Today, we're sitting down with professional nature photographer Elise Bender to chat about creating images with impact through conservation photography, tips for traveling alone and trip planning, and how being a better naturalist can improve your nature photography. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hello, my friends, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. And connecting with the natural world and using photography as a way to help people value the rich biodiversity it has is just one of the many topics I discuss with our guest today, Elise Bender. For those of you with an interest in nature, wildlife, or conservation photography, I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. So let me give you a brief background on Elise before we roll the interview. Elise Bender, who goes by Bender, is a nature photographer, writer, educator, and adventurer. Growing up with a camera in hand, her fascination for photography developed into a career after serving in the U.S. Air Force. Her passion for wildlife and the natural environment compels her to connect others with nature through sharing both visual art and in-field experiences that promote conservation, creativity, and ethical photography. Bender is a Tamron USA ambassador, contributing writer and photographer for the Journal of Wildlife Photography, and a Nature First Texas region ambassador. Her work has been featured in group and solo gallery shows across the U.S., as well as in international publications from the U.K. to Japan. She leads photography adventures around the world to help beginner through advanced photographers explore and expand their personal vision and naturalist skills ethically. When not in the field, she offers a variety of educational programs, both in person and virtually for photography organizations, large and small. And so without further ado, please enjoy my wide ranging and really fun conversation with Elise Bender. Elise Bender, or Bender, as you like to go by, I understand. Uh, Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, and thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so very much for having me. This is a a great pleasure and honor. So, Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. As we were just saying before we hit record, we've been sort of following each other here and there across the interwebs, and so it's great to actually get to connect. So I've already given the listeners your bio in the introduction, but I always like to give our guests an opportunity to tell us more about their origin story and sort of how they first got interested in photography. And I understand you were, you had an interest in it even as a little kid romping around the woods and that sort of thing. So what first sparked your interest in photography rather than, you know, drawing or or something like that? Well, don't get me wrong. When I was young, I did it all, you know, everything okay. from, from the pinch, <laughs> pinch pot clay uh, to drawing to, to photography. Um, I think that photography just, it was something that while back then it wasn't instantaneous like nowadays. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it was it was a way to record what I saw much better than I ever thought I could draw or paint or sculpt. You know, it was recording what I wanted it to see and mm. how I wanted to present it to those I was sharing the work with. Um, yeah. And as I grew up, it's the one that stuck when kind of my creativity, when it came to things like macrame or, or, or drawing, um, kind of went by the wayside because then I was having to create my own worlds when this was a perfectly good world for me to work within. So, um, I, I explored a lot of nature through the lens and so that's kind of what kicked kicked me off onto this trajectory that I'm now on so nice nice so yeah. do you come from like a outdoorsy family and did they encourage your time in nature yes and no um so we weren't outdoorsy in that like we always took camping trips or anything like that but um at least for about the first 7 years of my life i grew up kind of more in the country we had some acreage in florida and um i grew up around horses and you know mm-hmm. basically kind of having to entertain myself um and i didn't come from you know, a wealthy background by any means. And so, you know, TV was limited uh, to what the rabbit ears could bring in and and things like that. So, um, uh, so for me, it was an outlet. That's how I explored. That's how I entertained myself was learning about nature. And then um, my mom was really um, instrumental in you know, things that we would do together a lot of times were kind of more on that nature, uh, educational basis. So we would go to, there was local parks that would do like homesteading events where, you know, it would be like the old times where they were shearing sheep and carting wool and, you know, exploring all that, you know. Um, and so those were the type of events we did a lot of times and we would go hiking and, and take, take day trips around town. And I was lucky enough to grow up in, uh, North Central Florida and Gainesville, where there were a lot of outdoor opportunities and things to explore. So um, I grew up very nature based. So exploring it through the lens just kind of added an additional element to how I interacted with the world around me. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so cool. So how did, did you take photography classes as a kid then? Or were you just sort of playing and figuring it out as you went? No, I was just playing and figuring it out. My first camera was a Kodak point and shoot, uh, 35 millimeter camera. And I had that thing. I mean, I was duct taping the back door <laughs> shut, um, <laughs> for, for many a years, um, putting, putting a lot of film through it and, uh, riding my back, de- my bike down to Eckerd Drugs to get it developed kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I never did have any formal schooling, even to this day. I don't have have any formal schooling in photography. Um, it was always just kind of learn on my own yeah, uh, and see where it took me. Um, and then when I was a teenager, I took a second summer job to pay for my first digital, uh, nice. a little, a little point and shoot, um, yeah. and really started, you know, getting out and shooting more than, uh, and that kind of, you know, just kind of started the stepping stones into full time now because I got a basis for it. I got a taste for it then as a young adult and um, 
and to the point where I had enough people who were urging me, you know, in my, my late teens, early twenties that, Oh, you should, you should sell prints and this and that. And I thought I had a, enough of a, I had enough pride at that point that I actually did a few art fairs. I sold oh, a nice. few prints. Wow, um, that's not, great. Yeah, you know, not anything that I actually would um share nowadays. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but that's kind of how it started, you know, it just kind of that seed kind of started blossoming when people started it wasn't just me sharing with friends and family anymore. It was people were actually taking an interest in kind of how I saw the world um, yeah. and I was presenting it. And so I had a stint in the military where I got the travel bug. And mm-hmm. when I got out of the military, I, um, I had met my husband while in and we got married. He stayed in, which means we move every two to three years. So I need something that travels around with me. So when I got out, I started really working on the craft and really delving into it as something I could do either on the side. And then a few years later, um, in 2019, I went full time. Yeah, I understand that you were living in Japan at the time with your husband and and then you ended up having to be separated for like a year or so due to his duties. And so that brought you back to the States and you ended up going into the RV life and that kind of launched your photography career, which is pretty exciting. And so I have a lot of questions around that. But um, <laughs> first, I guess to back up just a little bit, you know, I understand you were in the Air Force and your nature photography today, you know, is pretty diverse. It it spans from wildlife to macro to impressionistic and more abstract in nature. But I'm curious, have you ever been drawn to exploring aerial photography, given your background in the Air Force? Um, I mean, I would love to, but it's expensive. <laughs> it is expensive. Yes, that's a good point. <laughs> um, and as much as it, it's hard for me to justify spending a couple hundred dollars on a quick flight over Denali when that couple hundred dollars could put me on the ground in another location somewhere else in the world for me to do a week or so of, of scouting and, and, and photographing terrestrially. Um, right. So that's, that's where I always weigh and kind of come back to, you know, uh, can I do more without getting into there? But yeah. I'm not beyond taking a shot out of an out of a commercial aircraft's uh, window. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a whole different perspective, and and so many abstracts that can be formed from the sky. And so, I was curious about that. It is, and I was even given the chance um, with drones. Uh, I swear, it was. It was one of those holiday seasons that I think that everybody was like, what do you get a photographer who seemingly has everything already? Right. Oh, let's get her a drone because I ended up with three drones wow. from different people. Yeah. And um, after about a year and a half of not using a single one of them, I ended up selling them. So it just yeah. wasn't it wasn't obviously pressing enough in my work that to go in and learn that new, new skill and go into that. Um, and you know, that's a whole nother, I feel like that's a whole different branch of photography rather than just what I do. It's like underwater photography. I've dabbled in that too, because I was a diver when I was in Guam. Um, but once again, the expense and the specialtiness of it, um, 
I do like having something that I can travel with regardless. Um, and that's where the terrestrial photography comes in. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. How has your experience in the military influenced how you approach your nature photography today, you know, in terms of giving you that travel bug or what you've learned in different cultural situations or different environments? What have you learned and how have you applied that to your photography? So that's that's kind of a hard one for me, because um, while the military gave me a lot of skills I actually use photography as a way to kind of break away from a lot of those more strict and constraining type um, where I'm worried about timelines. I'm worried about, you know, is, is everything following things to a T, you know, um, in, I was in airfield management in the air force. We dealt a lot with things like emergency response to in flight or ground emergencies. We made sure that the, the runways and the movement areas for aircraft were safe. So we had a lot of rules and regulations that we had to stand by and follow or things could go incredibly wrong if they weren't already. Yeah, um, yeah. So photography gives me that outlet to kind of allow myself to break away from those rules and create things that I simply enjoy. I simply enjoy spending time in nature, learning more and observing more while I'm out creating mm -hmm. And things like my impressionistic photography, that breaks all the rules right. <laughs> when it comes yeah. to photography <laughs> itself. Um, and so I think, I think that there, the military helped me more in creating it as a business and having mm -hmm. that drive and that structure to make myself sit down and do the things that we don't want to do. I mean, nobody wants to file paperwork and do taxes and things like that. Nobody does. Um, yeah. So, but as a business owner that, that you have to, um, right. and it also, I think it gave me more tools to be a better leader when it comes to being like a tour leader and a, and, and an instructor, because I'm used to having to explain and do step-by-step -step processes. Mm -hmm. So when I do bring people out into the field on tours and, and workshops, I'm able to implement that. I'm able to also see the various risks and safety and make sure that that's, you know, that's in the background the participants themselves don't have to worry about it because I've already analyzed it. And then we can get out there and just create. Um, right. And so I think that's where the military skills have come in is on the business side and on the tour logistics side of things. Yeah. Um, and then allowing me to separate kind of those things with the photography creativity. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it seems like Japan has really left an imprint on your heart when I've, you know, read through your blog. And so what is it about the country that that resonates with you? And could you paint a picture for us from a, an outdoor photographer's perspective? These are all really great questions. And this is it's it's hard to put my finger on just on like one key difference that that makes me long so much to get back to Japan. Mm -hmm. um, but. I think there's a couple things. One is that as a foreigner in Japan, especially where I lived over there for multiple years. And so when you live there, I think there you're in a different category 
Like mm. you're in this kind of in between zone. You're not you're not Japanese, but you're living there. And so you kind of have this own little space to yourself. Um which for some can be very isolating for others like myself. It's kind of a comfort because while there's no social weight that requires you to interact in any certain way other than respectfully. Right. Um, and the fact that Japan is such a safe country to travel in, um, where it's one of the safest in the world, that's also a huge difference. Um, yeah. Where I can leave my pack on my car, passenger seat, run in and grab lunch at a convenience store, and I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. I don't have to worry about people following me back to wherever I'm staying and stealing my gear like we've seen in places in California. You know, right. I like there's just a bit of a weight taken off your so- shoulders by understanding that these things, you know, that's just not really done. But from an outdoor photographer's standpoint, Japan has such a wide diversity of wildlife, of environments to photograph in. Um, I lived in the far north of the main island of Honshu. Okay. And so I was a few kilometers to the ocean, and I was an hour's drive into the mountains. You get four seasons. and while it is the snowiest airbase that the U.S. Air Force has there, um, it doesn't get, you're not dealing with like Montana winter where it's negative 30, negative 50. You're right. just, you're hovering around freezing. So the snow sticks. Some days it melts a little bit. Some days it goes away. Sometimes it pours down. So you really get all these seasons without having anything super extreme. Um, which makes it really nice to yeah. to kind of live and work around those right. seasons. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, and never mind from a traveling photographer's point of view is the culture is so different than what we experience here in the West. Um, and to me, I, I love the food. I love the culture. Like there's, you know, there's nothing like having some sushi and then going and soaking in a hot, you know, in an onsen, which is, you know, a hot spring um, right. in your off time. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, perfect date night kind of thing. Right. So um, to me, there's just so much to love about the country. Uh, not to say it doesn't have its negatives. I, I do understand that, um, you know, with my eyes open, um, yeah. but I don't think there's any perfect country out there. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. When was the last time you were there with the pandemic and everything? I'm sure you were delayed. I was, but I was lucky enough. I was there February 2020. Literally, oh, I got back wow. like a week or so before they had closed borders. You're like, why and didn't I get stuck here? <laughs> I, you know, there's been times I've asked myself that. <laughs> I have asked myself that a couple of times. Yeah. Um, but uh, 
fingers crossed, they look like they're slowly, ever so slowly reopening. So we will see. I'm hoping to have um, my February 2023 trip go. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. Well, I'll keep my fingers crossed. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, So when you got back to the States after living in Japan for a while, you did about a year of RV life, as I said earlier. And I'm curious, what was traveling alone like? And do you have any recommendations for people who are interested in pursuing sort of that van life for RV lifestyle alone? Because there are people who have a lot of reservations around it, but also are excited by the idea of it. Do you have any recommendations on how to stay safe or, you know, pros and cons of having lived on the road? So I will say that while I was alone in person, I did have my two dogs with me. Oh, nice. So um, I wasn't ever really totally alone. Um, mm-hmm. I did have my dogs. So yeah. that is, there is something to be said for that. Um, yeah. So I guess my biggest thing with being on the road and being by yourself is you you need to know yourself and know what your requirements are to be happy and healthy uh, when traveling. Um, And for me, I actually, because I had the dogs with me, I ended up in a 25 foot RV um, Mm. that to me is much larger than um, I would have liked. I just, it was what I could find at the time. Um, RVs had taken off right before then it seemed um everybody wanted an rv at that point um and so it's just what i i could find um but making sure that you have a sound vehicle that was always my biggest concern um you know if the tires won't go around you're in trouble (laughs) right um and a lot of pre-planning went into it. Um, I was lucky enough to have family based in Vegas. So that's when I came back from Japan. That's where I touched down and I stayed with them for a bit while I was able to get the RV and while I was able to make my plans for where I was going to be going. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially with having the dogs with me, I had to be aware of the facilities. I had to make sure that they were um, dog friendly. I had to make sure that the temperatures weren't, especially, you know, being based out of Vegas and going around the Southwest, uh, you have to be careful of the temperatures. For Um, sure. Yeah. So making sure of that. Um, so a lot of pre-planning went into it. And then when we hit the road, making sure things like understanding the height and width of your vehicle and where you're going to be parking. Um, I did eventually, after a couple months, install solar panels so mm-hmm. I could operate kind of boondocking. Yeah. But I still preferred to be in a campground, even if it was just like forestry, you know, but it was a documented campground. Yeah. Um, I was willing to pay the, the 10 $15 a night for that um, because that leaves a trail. Oh, that's uh, a good, very good point. Yeah. You know. Because even if I don't have service, somebody online knows where I was supposed to be for that night. Right. Um, yeah. So that's a great tip. That. Yeah. Because a lot of people want to, you know, stealth camp or whatever, camp in the Walmart parking lot and that sort of thing. And you're right. There's no trail, paper trail or. Yeah. 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 Um, 
And I mean, don't get me wrong, out of out of that year, I had a few nights that were more that were boondocking. Um, but I've also, you know, I would have my itineraries set out and I'd leave them with my family in Vegas. So they knew where I was supposed to be. Carrying a spot tracker um, Mm -hmm. is something I've been doing for years. So having some sort of of tracker personal location device. Nowadays, they're they're relatively inexpensive, and they work around the world. So if you're a traveler, I personally think you should, you should have one. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and so, you know, just having those layers gave me more confidence yeah. and, um, you know, bear spray doesn't just yeah. work on bears. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> you're really worried. Um, so, you know, it, it was just making sure, you know, again, a lot about planning, a lot about making sure I had covered those risks and being confident in myself, understanding that I'm good if I don't have reception for 48 hours, as long as somebody knows where I'm supposed to be mm-hmm. and I have my tracker, I'm not worried. Yeah. So my anxiety doesn't grow just because I lose cell phone you know, coverage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And do you ever worry about, you know, being out in the field by yourself and when you're focused on a composition? You know, and you can sort of get lost in the creative space or, you know, not I'm not saying you do specifically, but a lot of people do. They kind of mm-hmm. lose sight of what's going on around them or awareness of what's going on around them. Do you have any tricks to how to manage that when you're really immersed into a composition and your subject, how to remind yourself to, like, make sure you're also aware of your surroundings if you need to be? So I don't really I don't really know how to answer that, because for me. Being aware of my surroundings, again, I think it goes back to childhood and just being outdoors all the time. Um, even if I'm focused visually on on one thing or another, I'm hearing, uh, you know, everything that's going on around me. I don't wear headphones when hiking or while photographing. Like, I want to be surrounded by nature. And if there are things that then tip me off because it's not a regular sound or I have a blue jay that's alerting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things like that. Understanding what certain animal sounds make when there's a threat in the area, mm-hmm. um, especially with as much wildlife photography as I do, I often know how my subjects are reacting to myself. So mm-hmm. if they change their behavior, then I'm wondering what are they reacting to? Right. Uh, yeah. So just observing things like that while photographing and kind of keeping your ears open, um, even if your eyes are doing something else, that's usually how I proceed. Um, yeah. And I totally get being, you know, lost in a composition or lost within the moment of, you know, if you're, if you're, really invested in in a subject and you've been there and you're watching them for hours and you know you can kind of get lax but that's where then you rely on say your wildlife subject to react for you and that should be why did they just lift their head if they've been you know if it's a moose and they've been grazing for an hour on and off why did they just suddenly alert with their ears right and understanding that or why did the jay behind me just start screaming and long lenses and tripods also make for weapons. So, 
Once again, you know, you bear bear spray on the hip and you got a long lens and a tripod and you're good. So, right, right, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, with traveling so much, you're exploring new locations a lot. You know, do you ever go back and revisit locations and sort of immerse yourself a little bit more deeply in that? And if not, how are you trying to connect with the landscape when it's a new spot and you know you're, you need to move on and go on to the next spot? So I I do go back, um, especially places like that I've lived. Um, you know, moving every two to three years kind of gives me this great balance between being a, a, a traveler all the time but also having a new home base to explore every couple of years. So mm-hmm. oftentimes when I first move to an area, I will take the first three, six, 12 months and explore that area and just crawl over every rock, every trail, you know, everything that I can possibly do. Texas has been very hard because it's so large, but I'm, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying. Um, <laughs> That's um, huge. But yeah. Getting to know different spots um, like a local would. Um, never will I say that I have 30 years experience in a particular spot. That's just not my, you know, I'm not in a spot for that, that long. Yeah. Um, but there's something to be said um, about, I'm also not going places just for one or two days either. I make sure that I have enough time to really immerse myself. Mm-hmm. Um, places I go back to are places like the Tetons, Monterey Bay, Japan. Um, and they're just places I, I absolutely adore photographing all the time. Yeah, But I do, you know, if that's all I was doing, I feel like I would get bored. Um, Mm -hmm. I have to also be exploring new places as well. Um, so adding in a mix of both old and new every year is my goal. Yeah. And that way I'm constantly learning new, new locations. I'm able to make connections between environments. You know, what are similarities in the way these animals behave and the way, you know, this other group behaves, um, across a geographical range. and kind of what works in this location, but doesn't work in other locations. So I'm able to kind of have a breadth of knowledge that spans more than just a local area mm-hmm. while still having some of those areas that I can really delve into like a local. Right. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. You know, similarities in climate between different regions or the geography, how you can draw parallels between them, even though they're different places. So what is your scouting and researching new locations process look like? Like what, how do you begin that process and how in depth do you get with your plans? So Google is my number one friend and I'm sure that will just hit everywhere. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's literally any of my planning starts there. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I, I hear about something or I read about a particular species or a particular place and that drives me to look further into it. Other times it's just what's good this time of year Mm -hmm. and let's go from there. Um, You know, I, I oftentimes will start with a Google image search 
you know, uh, with Japan when I was first moving to Japan. I was like, okay, let's see what they have. Um, Because I had never, I had never really considered it before. I always thought of Japan as Tokyo, you know, with the big skyscrapers. And there's so much more to to Japan than that. So, um, you know best landscape or best nature photography spots in Japan and Google image pulls up a whole ton of things. And then I just start clicking through and seeing which images I like, and then learning more about those and seeing where those I let myself fall down the rabbit hole is essentially what ends up happening. Um, And then you have instances where at this point, with as much research as I have done and as much data as I have given Google um, on my search criterias, they now suggest things for me. Um, Mm -hmm. Things like when I got back from Yellowstone earlier this year, I had an advertisement uh, for the Audubon of Kansas Lectrek Festival. I was like, (laughs) what is this? (laughs) Not something most people get in their, you know, in their pop-up ads, but Google knows me. Um, And I was like, what is this? Huh? And so I fell down the rabbit hole and ended up actually attending the festival, registering, going up there. And I've now written several articles and I'm actually working on on a third article now um, based on off my experience of going and photographing lesser prairie chickens in Kansas based off of a Google Google ad. So (laughs) that is hilarious. (laughs) um, I I had never considered Kansas, but that's, you know, (laughs) so... um, so I find it different different ways um, and being open to experiences, being open to ideas and not really – I have a few places that I will not go. Mm-hmm. Because of why? Things like North Korea I won't support. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's other places that I most likely would not go on my own. Yeah. Places like India. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't want to too early cross something off and say, no, I'm not doing it. I want to leave myself open to the possibility um, yeah. and seeing as much as I can see while I'm on this earth. Yeah. So oh, that makes sense. So let's dive in a little bit more into your wildlife photography. I really love it. I, I just get lost looking at your images and I really admire how you're able to capture the story or the experience or the perspective of the animal or even the insect that you're photographing. And so I was wondering if you could describe what your process is like for creating such compelling compositions of wildlife and, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about how much time you're spending in the field, observing and waiting for an opportunity and and learning and studying the animal. Well, First off, thank you very much for your kind words. I'm so happy that that you enjoy the work. Um, I do. But for me... Animals and and wildlife have always been a part of my life. Um, You know, going back to when I would bring wild snakes in the house and my mom would (laughs) tell me to take them back out and release them. Um, So I... I've I've had people say that I have like this sixth sense about wildlife. Um, So I, you know, I don't know how much there is to that other than I've always grown up learning about them. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
wanting to know more about behaviors, about movements, about their daily lives, you know, from uh, the, you know, from the housefly to the elephant. Um, it, that's always fascinated me. Um, incorporating travel and a, and a camera, then suddenly I'm able to bring these stories back to those who might not otherwise have the opportunity Mm -hmm. or the ability to experience these sort of, of experiences that I've been able to. Um, and, and so for me, my process goes into, I do my research beforehand, you know, like lesser prairie chickens before Google gave me that ad. I had no idea. Uh, I think I may have heard of them, but no idea what they were. Um, I figured they were a bird. Right. I'm like chickens. (laughs) Yes. Prairie chickens. Yes. I've heard of those lesser prairie chickens. No. Right. Right. Um, so as soon as I did that, I started delving into, okay, what exactly am I going to be seeing? What am I going, what behaviors at this time of year am I going to be observing? How is that working into a story? What is there behind this particular species story-wise that needs to be told? And mm-hmm. in this case, it's a species that is essentially endangered, but because it stands between uh, conservation and development um, of things like energy the energy sector, it's a small chicken taking on a big problem industry. So um, (laughs) it has been both listed and then delisted. And hopefully this year will be relisted again under the Endangered Species Act. Um, Yeah. So I had no idea, though. I had no idea until I started looking into it. And then the whole reason that they were having the Lectrek Festival at that time, which a lek is their their booming range or their, their dancing, uh, their dancing area that they do for their courtship dances. Um, okay. they do these, these fascinating, uh, courtship dances where they make these sounds and they stomp their feet and they fluff their feathers and snap them in every direction. It's absolutely amazing to watch. <laughs> it's, it's by far, it's, it's great. It's one of nature's little, just little oddities that is so fascinating. Yeah. Um, but like I had no idea. And so by doing my research before getting into the field, I already had an idea of, okay, I'm going to need to have this type of lens. I'm going to need to be prepared to be shooting. They start their dances very early in the morning. I need to be shooting with low light, high ISOs. Like, am I going to be able to process this? Is my gear ready for it? This and that, you know? So being prepared before ever stepping in the field to me is key to being able to capture and tell the stories I want to about the species I'm photographing. Um, And I think the more I know beforehand, the easier it is for me to actually go out and photograph these things um, because I know where they're going to be. I know what their behavior's like. I know what's going to be required of me to sit in the field. And so while, you know, it's not, this was a lot easier because people that are, you know, other science, the scientists and the people putting on the festival had already determined where we were going to sit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't have to worry about actually going out and finding them myself. But in other cases, like where I'm looking for moose in the Tetons, I know their habitat range. 
I know that that's not necessarily going to be, you know, a three mile hike up into the woods beyond Jenny Lake. Um, though they could be there. That's not their target is lower elevation along the rivers, unless it's really hot out. Um, knowing those nuances. Yeah. And then being able to target those locations and understanding things like tracking, looking at droppings, how frequently, you know, how, how fresh is the dropping I'm coming across on a trail? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and being that naturalist, um, in order to put yourself in a better position to photograph the species you're after. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So in what ways are you doing this research? Is it primarily on the internet? Are you going to certain websites that you find to be really valuable for the first pass of references that you would go through to look for information on a specific species? So for me, oftentimes I'm I'm starting just with a general Google search again, um, yeah. making sure that the websites I'm going to are peer reviewed, if you will. They yeah. aren't necessarily just written by the layman, you know, oh, I found these burrowing owls at this location. Um, though that can be helpful, it's not going to delve into, that's a great starting point, but it's not necessarily going to describe what to look for if the burrowing owl is in that exact location for you. Like, where do you go from there? Yeah. Um, so that's, I want to know, okay, this is their habitat. This is a great starting location, but if they aren't there, where else might I find them in this general vicinity kind of thing? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I do start again with a lot of Google but then it goes from there. It goes to places like with birds. A lot of times I'll go to Audubon, um, mm-hmm. Sibley's, uh, National Geographic. And I will read other photographers' blogs. Mm-hmm. That's a great place to to get information. I put out a blog every, every month. I put out a post. Um, so I hope people are using what I put out as references. Yeah. Um, and, you know, going from there as to how much in depth I know, depending on the species, some species like the lesser prairie chicken, I knew nothing about beforehand. So I needed to learn as much as I possibly could, but I didn't need to know things like tracking because they already had the spots. So right. figuring out exactly what you need to know is kind of tailored to the specific species. Or if you're just going to a location, then kind of learning about what species are supposed to be in the area and being able to kind of flesh out from there the the research you do. So. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I understand that you are using a Nikon D500, and that's a, a crop sensor camera. Mm-hmm. And many photographers think that it's, you know, bigger is always better when it comes to sensor size, but that's obviously not necessarily true. So I was wondering, what are some of the advantages of using a crop sensor when it comes to wildlife? So I say with a crop sensor because of wildlife photography, um, because for me, it was more important to have the ability to shoot in low light mm-hmm. and to have the crop factor so that my images were essentially, if I have a 150 to 600 lens, I'm out at the 600 range on my 1.5 crop sensor, I essentially have a 900 millimeter lens. So for me, also note, I'm hand holding the majority of it. So I'm not having to wrangle a huge lens. I can have my Tamron 150 to 600 and hand hold it comfortably while still getting the benefit of that 1.5 factor just because I chose to stay with a crop sensor body. Yeah, 
Yeah, so, that makes a lot of sense, especially also with the low light factor yes. in there as well. Yes. Um, so do you ever use a teleconverter to get even more reach? No. Um, I I try and carry as little gear as possible. Um, mm-hmm. And because of the crop factor within the camera body, I've never felt the need to carry an additional um, teleconverter that would stop me down even further because yeah. the Tamron 150 to 600 G2 is my primary wildlife lens and it's not an F4. Um, so I don't want to lose any more stops of light. It performs beautifully. It's, it's my baby. It performs absolutely beautifully. Yeah. But that's because I have it paired with the body that I have and I understand how to work that pair to get the most out of my gear. And I yeah. think that's probably another important factor to consider is what your gear is good at what you're trying to do, and understanding your gear's limitations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I had the opportunity, one of the times I was up in the Canadian Yukon, my friend and I, who I was traveling with, came across, um, I'm going to forget the name of the herd, but it was a caribou herd that was coming through in migration and we just happened upon it. And it was just like, like, whoa, but we weren't prepared for that so much. And I had a, a 50 to 500 Sigma lens, which is, you know, a nice travel lens because it covers so much focal range and a 2X teleconverter. So I thought I was like totally perfect with the reach and all of that, except that I think the widest open I could get was F13. And in my excitement, I hadn't switched to auto ISO or something like that. And so everything was blurry, just a little soft, you know, and I was so bummed, but lesson learned, you know, and now I'm like, yeah, maybe to teleconverter or at least when I use it, I am so much more aware of that factor now. Well, and, and you bring up a good point, you know, things like an F13 for most of my wildlife work, my images would not turn out near what they do if I had to use an aperture of F13, even F11. Um, most of my wildlife is, almost all of it is photographed with apertures no larger than F8. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but that's because I like a softer background foreground and I just want my subject in focus. So. Yeah. Um, so that's just that's just another reason I wouldn't use a teleconverter because it does make you stop down so much um, in order to to utilize it. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. So while we're talking about composition and depth of field and and different techniques like that, what are the different things that you're considering while you're composing your wildlife portraits? You know, sometimes people think you focus on the the nearest eye. There's so many things to be taking into consideration. There's the environment. There's the animal who's moving. There's the behavior that you're trying to capture to tell a story and how to put that all together compositionally. I don't really have a lot of experience doing wildlife, so I'm always so amazed when people can pull that off because it's like so many things have to align. And, but you have to be aware of all of these different components and you don't necessarily have the chance to take your time with it, even if you are being very patient with the animal. So what are, what's sort of going through your head and when you know like, oh, that's what I'm looking for in a composition? So I rarely go into a situation where I have like this preconceived vision in my head, um, which I think helps because it leaves me once again open to the possibilities of what Mm -hmm. I'm going to see, what I'm going to be able to capture. Um, 
And at the back end of the day, it leaves me less disappointed. Right. <laughs> um, which is always a good thing. Keeps you in love with it. Um, yeah. But for me, you mentioned having focus on the nearest eye. And I think unless for some reason you are doing some special image where the eye is not not a factor for the story you're telling, I think if anything is in, you can have an image that is pretty much not sharp anywhere else. But if that eye isn't sharp, it can really kind of unnerve a viewer. Mm. And, and so I think eye sharpness is probably the most important key to wildlife photography. Yeah. Um, like I said, there, are, there are situations and I have situation, I have, I have example images in my portfolio where eyes are not sharp. Um, so there are times to break that rule, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. like any other rule, there are times to break it. Right. Um, but for me, because my style does rely on the shallow depth of field, I am often wanting to find um, animals in a setting where I can, one, get eye level with them, mm-hmm. um, whether that means I'm on my belly in the sand and mud for, for a sandpiper, um, or I'm able to stand up because it's a moose or a wild horse. Uh, those are the easier days. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, but I want to be eye level because that's going to give me the contact, um, that we as viewers want to create between our subject and our viewer. Um, you know, that eye contact being able to be at eye level or slightly below eye level gives you the best, best interchange of experience, um, when looking at the the composition on a 2d image so those are kind of the key elements and then because i like that softness i want to also find where i can put a foreground in there that can become almost a a soft framing and lead and kind of wrap around that subject and whatever behavior they're doing and blend with the background Mm -hmm. um, in order to really set the stage for the viewer to get directly into the image with the subject and then connect with that subject. Mm -hmm. Um, So even when I was photographing bears in Alaska, I was getting down as low as I possibly could to the river um, where they were fishing in order to get that water in the foreground and soften that water and then just have the bear coming out of the water. And, you know, the bear is sharp, but the water is still soft leading up to the bear, right. um, you know, trying to really utilize a soft foreground. And that's just my personal style. Everybody finds their own style. But that for me is what I really enjoy. Um, and I think it it helps the viewer. There's no question what the subject is. When, when you see an image like that, you know, right. and you go directly to it as a yeah. viewer. So, um, yeah. and that immediate connection hooks viewers and helps them stay within the image and helps them make a personal connection with the subject so that then they can care about it. So then when I tell them that, oh, there's this little prairie chicken, you know, the one that you just saw that was dancing, you know, right. that, that <laughs> one is standing between, <laughs> between the destruction of short grass prairies and, you know, and, and big oil who wants to come in and do that, you know, so right. we should care about these little chickens, right. uh, you know, <laughs> um, but making that connection because 
not every animal is going to be cute and fluffy like a koala, uh, you know, or, or, or a kitten. Um, mm-hmm. But we need to care about the biodiversity. Yeah. Um, so whether yeah. it's an insect, whether it's a snake, whether it's whether it is a grizzly bear, um, not everybody finds them cute. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, the whole reason I'm doing this is to bring those experiences back and hopefully so that my images will also help with conservation mm-hmm. of these species and of the biodiversity around the world. Um, and so I think by making sure that my compositions allow the viewer no questions asked to connect with that subject is the ultimate goal for my compositions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was wondering if you could tell us about your first wild wolf encounter in Yellowstone. I saw that image, I think, on on your Instagram account. Beautiful, beautiful photograph. We're just talking about eyes. That that was, oh my goodness. And I'll I'll link to the, the photo in the show notes so that people can see it. Um, But can you tell us about that animal and then what happened shortly after you were able to photograph it? So that was, um, this was this, just this past January, January, 2022, when I was up in Yellowstone for the first time in winter. And um, it was our second or third day out in the snow coach. And we were just kind of cruising down, down the road, not really thinking we were going to see anything because it was in kind of, um, uh, we were going towards towards Canyon um, from, I think, from Norris. Um, and so it's just, you know, a bunch of evergreen trees. Not a whole lot normally comes through there in the winter because of the higher elevation. Mm-hmm. So um, we came around the bend and it was just, there were these two wolves just standing right there in the middle of the, you know, coming right down the edge of the road. and. Myself and, and my two friends who were with me, we just kind of flipped. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't really throw the brakes on a snow cat, uh, on a snow coach. Um, but uh, we did the best we could. And we just kind of sat there and they passed us by because uh, they they broke into the woods. And we were looking and we were watching. And once again, understanding wolf behavior during the winter, knowing that they are trying to conserve as many calories as possible mm-hmm. and that there was deep snow within the trees, I knew that they were going to be breaking out back onto the road as yeah. soon as they could. Yeah. And so we ended up just kind of sitting there for a few minutes, kind of being able to catch glimpses as they were going through the trees. And I started looking along the tree line for any potential breaks within the tree line that looked like they were large enough for a wolf to come out. Mm-hmm. where they might most probably be coming out to get back on the road and continue on their way. Yeah. Um, and sure enough, you know, I had my, my hand on the, on the handle, the door handle. And as soon as they poked out and it was right where I expected them to, uh, the snow coach driver, they were far enough away that the snow coach driver said, yep, you can get out. Don't, don't go far, but like you yeah. can, you can get out get out. Yeah. And I don't even remember, like, I remember pulling the handle and then the next thing I knew I was on the ground. Um, it, it had to have been one of the most intense moments I've had, um, wow. as a wildlife photographer making eye contact with those wolves. Um, it's just something I still remember like viscerally. Yeah. Um, 
but I was able to photograph it. We got Basically, we got two shots as they broke from the trees and got on the road. And as soon as they got on the road, they both continued on, not even looking back over their shoulder. Um, and so that is an image I will cherish for a very long time. Yeah. Um, especially considering that I found out in the week after I got back that that wolf was one of the 23 wolves of Yellowstone that were killed just outside the park boundaries this past season. Um, And, you know, I wish, I wish I could say that this was the first time something like this has happened. Um, But unfortunately, in my line of work, it's both job security and absolute sorrow to work with species of special concern because um, there's so many of them and Mm. they are many of them are still on the decline and um, things like the hunting regulations, things like uh, one of the grizzly bears that I've photographed has been unmercifully uh, hazed for several seasons now. Um, because she learned roadside behavior to protect her cubs, but she's outside of the park boundaries. And so the Forestry Service deems her a threat. And there was huge public outcry when they said they were just going to get rid of her. So they've done hazing, but I was actually up there when they started hazing her. And it was extreme, throwing everything that they had at her and her two young cubs. I just can't imagine how terrified. Uh, she is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the grizzly family that I spent five days with in Alaska back in 2020, August of 2020, it was a mother with three older cubs. And um, the month after we had spent basically five days, almost, I want to say it was about 15 hours with this family over five days, learned that three out of the four had been hit by cars Whoa. and the fourth one would not leave the site where his, his, her family had been killed over the course of two days due to cars. And wow. so the wildlife services up there ended up having to put that bear down as well. So an entire family was lost after about a month after I photographed them up there. Um, Again, wow. because of human, I won't say interference, but development, you yeah. know, progress. It, it just comes with a larger population. We're going to have more and more run-ins. Right. So. Um, and we're taking over their space. Yeah. And they're adapting to us. And, you know, humans generally don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. So, yeah. So I am happy to see that places like Jackson Hole are starting to slowly step up and try and mitigate um, the wildlife-human interactions by putting things in place like bear-proof garbage cans. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's a slow roll, and yeah. not all communities are open to it. And yet there's wildlife around every community. So, right. um Once again, I'm hoping that by photographing and being able to tell the stories that I do behind the images, that more and more people are able to make these connections and start caring about their wild neighbors. Yeah. Um, And and the wildlife that we have here in this country as well as around the world. So, uh, and 
I'm I'm very proud that I have been able to be a contributing author to the Journal of Wildlife Photography for the last several years. Yeah. And that article, each article that I write for them is about a particular species of special concern. And it tells a lot of information about, you know, the behavior, the life cycle of that particular species. It talks about the conservation surrounding the species, um, positive and negative. Um, and then it goes on to talking about how to photograph that particular species and then how to use those photos to further the conservation efforts. Oh, that's so that great. Then I'm not the only one out there. Yeah. If other people are photographing, they have a resource now that they can go and they can be like, okay, this is what I need to do to help further conservation for this particular species. And then that way I I feel I'm not just a drop in the bucket like that. Right. Now we're, we're forming a rain cloud of, of, of photographers who, who know how to use their work to further conservation efforts of species. Yeah. So oh, that's excellent. I love that. So for, for people who do want to get involved, say they have a species in their local town or whatever that they're concerned about and they want to start to be more active with their photography. How do you look for assignments and pitch ideas and that sort of thing? What's a good approach to that to try to get their images out in a meaningful way? Well, I'm not sure about how to go about finding assignments. Um, I kind of just make them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I, I am in a position where I give myself assignments. the the journal brought me on years ago they they approached me so um i'm nice. i'm not sure there are ways to pitch yourself to editors to organizations that do offer assignments mm-hmm. i highly suggest looking up uh Jamie Heimbeck yes she's been a guest on the show yeah yes so refer to her for that portion of it yeah. for me my my tact the way i i approach using my images for conservation is I go and I take the images and I put in the work and I do writing as well. So I, I'm, I'm the complete package, if you will, when it comes to that, where I also do the writing mm-hmm. um, and I get the information out there. And I do that through my own blog. But then I also will approach, once I have a completed package, I will approach others, especially if you're working with something that's local look to your local papers, look to your mm. local news organizations, especially if it if you can do it in a positive light. Maybe it's just a clip, just a, something to get people starting to think about it or, or interested in it. A lot of times they need little feel good stories. Yeah. Um, and and so that can be an introduction to a local species that people aren't necessarily aware of. And then you can further that information by going into the conservation portion of it right. um, at a later date once, you know, people have gotten interested in it or, oh, hey, you know, they want to follow up with that that small rookery that just started forming on the edge of this pond. Well, what happens when a developer comes in? Well, you've already had the feel-good story. So let's talk about, oh, all of a sudden this feel-good story is in jeopardy. Right. Finding that sort of tact. Yeah. But really, the number one thing is just networking, getting more people interested in species, in the biodiversity that this world has to offer. There's 
so many people that did not grow up like I did immersed in nature that have no idea. I'm constantly on like my neighborhood Facebook page and people will be all, all scared about a particular snake. And then I get on there with, you know, Oh, here are the facts. It's actually a good guy. You want this one because of this, this, and this, you know, right. Right. And, and spreading the information so that people can know more about their wild neighbors. The more they know about them, the less scared they have to be about them. It's not an unknown anymore. Right. So as a wildlife photographer, it's not necessarily always about the picture, but the education that goes in behind the picture. Yeah. So being able to kind of cross pollinate between being a naturalist and a wildlife photographer, I think is, is a real plus and, and a real skill that does everybody better. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's really helpful. I know we have a number of people who are listening who are interested in doing work like this with their photographs. So thank you. Well, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? Sure. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how this goes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite subject to photograph? Wildlife. <laughs> Can you be any more specific? Or <laughs> um. Japanese wildlife. All right. Cool. <laughs> tripod or no tripod? No tripod. Yeah. And why? It grows roots. I can move a lot faster and be more reactive without it. Yeah. Yeah. What's one piece of gear that's not photography related that never leaves your pack? My waterproof outer shell pants. Nice. If you could only photograph one place for the rest of your life, where would it be and why? Hokkaido, Japan. Yeah. <laughs> because it's it's amazing all seasons and I have not explored it near enough. There's still so much more to cover. Is this where the cranes are? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But not yeah. where the snow monkeys are. Okay. Okay. So you've recently, in the last, what, year maybe, have moved to Texas? Two years? Mm-hmm. I don't know how long you've been there. Uh, What has surprised you most so far about exploring Texas, aside from how big it is? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The diversity of environments has really surprised me and getting to know more of the the prairie species uh, has been eye opening. Nice. Um, and you can you can thank Linda Nickel for those last two questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sure to thank her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So final question. What does connecting with nature mean to you? Connecting to nature is something I take absolutely to heart. And it's something that for me means being in nature and around nature in all things. So understanding that we are part of nature mm-hmm. and what we do has an impact. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. There's a huge difference between being a part of nature and being apart from nature, <laughs> yes. which I think is how many people are these days. We aren't on a different plane. It's it's we're all on the same uh, the, the same level with nature and um we just kind of have to get used to it. Right. <laughs> again, again, yeah. I think at, at some point we were, and then technology has taken us, given us this false sense that we aren't anymore. Yeah. 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 I agree. So. 
Well, Bender, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of this great wisdom with us and your experiences and stories. It's been really fun to chat with you. If people wanted to learn more about your photography and your, you don't call them workshops, you call them photo adventures. Photo adventures. Yeah. If they wanted to learn more about your photo adventures and a lot of your other educational offerings, what's the best way for them to find you? So my website is abenderphotography.com or on social media at abenderphoto um, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, though I'm not very active on Twitter. So Instagram is the best platform for social media. Okay, Um, excellent. But yeah, thank you so very, very much for having me on. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I hope it's not the last time. I hope so too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bender. And again, you can find out more about her photography, writing, and photo adventures on her website at abenderphotography.com. Again, thank you, Bender, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I appreciate you and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. Two quick notes. Bender mentioned the work of conservation photographer Jamie Heimbook, who was our guest back in episode seven. And Jamie is the founder of Conservation Visual Storytellers Academy, where she helps photographers learn how to develop conservation photography projects and how to work with editors to get them published. So be sure to listen to that episode if you haven't already. Bender also mentioned after our interview that the Journal of Wildlife Photography plans to start focusing their articles on becoming a better naturalist. So if that's something that you're interested in learning more about, I put links to this and all the other things we discussed today in the show notes at outdoorphotographypodcast.com slash 63. And last but not least, I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll share a practical photography or outdoor tip and or answer your submitted questions. So if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a Tidbit Tuesday or a topic you'd like to suggest, you can record your message or contact me through the podcast website. And until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.